Hi, everybody. I'm Jordan Ostroff with Legalese Marketing, and this is Exhibit A Turnings, where we interview attorneys and other experts across the country to talk about what it truly takes to be the Exhibit A of a successful attorney. And finally, on this one, I have to break my double dip because Chelsea Williams, our financial expert guru, was financially smart enough to not become an attorney and therefore put herself into a ton of debt with minimal earning potential and instead focus on providing great support from a financial standpoint to other attorneys. So I don't get an attorney and an expert. Today we have just an expert. So Chelsea's gonna to talk to us about understanding your money, mastering your law firm's finances. Um, if you've listened to the show, I think, I know for a fact Chelsea's name has come up several times before, positive stuff from some of our prior guests, but if you don't know her, she's got over a decade of accounting experience and has focused in the legal space for the last several years. She's got the knowledge to not just get your financial house in order, but instead, to set it up for long-term sustainability at a healthy profit, which I always love because it's, we talk about accounting so much from a reactive standpoint. And then you talk to Chelsea and you realize there's actually a whole proactiveness to it that she brings that most people do not. So her passion is financial literacy for the masses. And now she's offering her expertise to all small business law firms in the country through a number of different service offerings and whatnot that we'll talk about. Um, one thing specific to your core solutions is niching in the legal space understanding how law firm money works, how it moves in a way that most professionals do not. I know we as attorneys always talk about our businesses being different and usually they're not except for this spot. This is the one where we're the weirdest. Contingency fee cases, ethics with billing, with retainers, with all that stuff. It's just a totally different beast. So this is where you really have to have that financial expert who is even the legal financial expert when it comes to those things. So Chelsea and her team know the common struggles that attorneys face and know how to overcome them. Did I miss anything there? I think you got it all. It's pretty good. All right. I mean, you wrote most of it. So I just had to, I got to vibe <laughs> a little bit off of it. It makes it a lot easier. So like I said, today we were talking about understanding your money, mastering your law firm's finances. We'll get to that in about 20 seconds. But while that's going on, I want to make sure for those of you who are listening, not watching this, but those who are listening, We've got a couple ways to stay in touch with Chelsea and her team. Uh, LinkedIn.com slash IN slash Chelsea hyphen M hyphen Williams. Facebook.com slash your core solution. Instagram.com slash core underscore solutions underscore group. And www.yourcoresolution.com. All right. So we'll get into that in about 10 seconds, but I want to talk about our previous episode. That aired last Thursday. We had Justy Nickel, Nickel, keep wanting to say Nicole, Nickel on here. Talk to us about why lawyers should not fear marketing. Really interesting conversation for anybody of that old school belief of we don't market, we're not in the yellow pages, we are the best kept secret, etc. This is a really interesting conversation of how you get over that and what that looks like and some mistakes to avoid. So I highly suggest if that's a problem that you suffer from, which is most of us, listen to that after we pick Chelsea's brain here on the amazing insight that she has to share with us. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to finally get on here. I know we had to reschedule. So today is the day to talk law firm money. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited because like I've just been, you know, duct taping my finances together. So I figure I'm going to get a bunch of takeaways from this. Chat. Oh my gosh. And the thing is, you know, that's so normal. I can't. So one of the things that was obvious to me when I got into this <clears throat> niche is that lawyers carry a lot of shame around their money 
you know, you mentioned you go to law school and aside from debt, you get this wonderful kind of in the box thinking where you feel like you have to be you're, you hold yourself to this standard and you should understand all of these things and you're super smart and everybody sees you as this super smart, successful person. And then you get to the finances when you open up your own law firm and you're like, crap, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not really sure. And most attorneys will hold it so close to them because they're terrified for anybody to look in and see, I don't know what I'm doing with my money. And you know, I, I have most of the people that come to us come in that state of mind. And so that's one reason why I really enjoy what I what I do here. I, I made a list of the top 10 money myths. And the first one is that my law firm is a unicorn and no financial system will work for me because I'm so different because I have contingency based settlement fees and my revenue patterns are volatile. But the truth is that is not the case. There are systems and processes that you can put into place to manage all of these things and give you that financial clarity. So I've really enjoyed working with attorneys. I've found it, um, it, it's a challenge for sure, but you know, I really enjoy it. When I first opened my doors, there was this one particular question that I would ask all the attorneys that I spoke with that called me or that allowed me to network with them when I was first getting started. And that was, why did you become an attorney? And why did you open your own practice around it? And the responses that I got were like heart filling. They were very, very noble and, and almost heroic. And, you know, a lot of attorneys set out to make a difference and create impact, even if it's just in one family or if it's on a larger scale. Um, and but money can be one of those things that really bogs us down if we don't address it. So I think that's one of the more important things is to kind of face the books, right? Face the money. Well, and I'll give you the why, because look, most lawyers are going off of, or at least taught that you're going to go off of billable hours. And so what that means is the $250 an hour lawyer is better than the $200 an hour lawyer and the $300 an hour lawyer is better than the $250. And it just, we get this whole concept of our time being literally worth money and therefore all of our value coming in the form of money, I think. Yes. And which is so contradictory to being an entrepreneur, because that's what you are when you open up a law firm, right? You're an attorney and you're also an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs, there's two different ways to earn money. Okay. There's fixed revenue, fixed income, and residual income. Fixed income says you're trading dollars for hours. And that's that mentality that traditionally the industry is coming out of because we're starting to see that change, right? We're starting to see flat fee and value-based pricing more often. Yeah. Um, and so getting away from that fixed dollar for hour mindset and into that residual revenue of you set something up once and you monitor it and it has repeatable systems. So you have consistent results. You set it up right once and you continue to make money off of it over and over again. So I think that's one of the mindsets that, you know, we really have to aim to break. And it's one of the things that I can really relate to with the legal industry, because coming from a tax and accounting industry, we both deal with government agencies which are slow to react, slow to respond, resistant to change. Like the best thing that COVID gave us was a jolt forward in the industry in terms of technology and efficiency and getting more with the times. Right. And so but we take that or at least like on. 2005 instead of 1985. Yes, which is huge in such a small time, right? 
So I know you had mentioned you made your top 10 list of money myths. Is that what you want to go through? Or do we want to have more of a conversation on the mastering your law firm's finances? Yeah, I think it's really important to touch on them. And it really is part of mastering your law firm finances. Perfect. So anytime that I talk about money um, and even in, so we are putting together a virtual course right now that you can go and enroll in. It'll be launching next month or soon after. Um, and even in my course, I have an entire module dedicated to money mindset and money habits. Um, money is a vessel. It's a thing that we can use. It's a resource. That's it. We make it to be this bigger thing than it really is. But the resource or the tool is really a reflection of what's going on by the user, by the person that's using the tool, right? And so we are not taught about money. Law school didn't teach you a lot of what you needed to know about being a business owner, right? That's up to you. You could say anything that you need to know. And I think I, that sentence is perfect. Correct. Nothing. It taught you nothing you needed to know about being an entrepreneur, right? You have to be the one that goes out and does that. And my favorite part about owning my own business and being an entrepreneur is that it is solely dependent on me. My business is only gonna grow as much as I am willing to face my own mistakes and learn and grow from them, right? And money yeah. is so different. See, that's interesting because I have the opposite view on my, at least the law firm and the marketing company is getting there where like, it's better off without me. Like I have, I guess at its core, <laughs> I have set up the right people in the right spots, but. I, I was like going to say though, but, but why is that though? Is that because you can be honest about what you need to delegate, right? You're honest with yourself that it's best to run without you, or you've set it up to a place where you have a goal and objective and you've created the repeatable systems and processes to be able to move on to another venture. Oh, definitely a good combination of those. Cause like, I know that I am terrible at most things. Like I have my very narrow window that I can go, you know, super deep on. And I try to stay in that window. Yeah. And I mean, money is no different, right? We, we all have to face our demons with money. And so, you know, I, I lean a lot on science. I love human psychology. I love the science of the brain and our neurons and how all of that stuff works. And, you know, science has proven that by the age of seven, seven, we have already established our core values and beliefs around most of life. Seven years old. Seven years old. Whoa. Yes. Imagine that, like there you are sitting in second grade and suddenly you're like, boom, this is how I'm going to view the reality for the rest of my existence. And not to say that things don't happen after seven years old that contribute to your current belief system, but what you're taught and what you observe for the first seven years of your life really dictate your beliefs up until through your adulthood. So, you know, like in my course, I well, we go through an exercise where we ask ourselves, what did your parents teach you about money? through the age of seven, right? And here's what I'm looking for. So me, for example, my dad was a semi-driver. He was over the road for 14 hours a day. So, you know, he was hardly ever home. My quality time was at 4.30 in the morning when he would wake me up to have oatmeal with him before he went on his route. And then he would be gone for the rest of the day, right? So in my mind, money was something that you sacrificed a lot of things, including family. You worked long hours, right? It was a very scarcity way to think about money. And there was also a lot of guilt of asking for things that cost a lot of money, right? Because we're like a middle-class family. So how you grew up and what you watched your parents and the people around you do to earn money and provide really dictates a lot of how you see things now. So that's why we get a lot of guilt around, you know, making too much money, like making too much money is a thing. 
right? See, that's, that's super interesting because my dad, so um, my school let us open bank accounts. I want to say it was kindergarten or first grade and it was Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. And my dad was like, all right, I will match up to $5 a week. And I think my allowance was like five bucks. Um, and so I was like, oh, if I, if I put this in the bank, I've now doubled my allowance based upon all of that. And then I ended up saving up that money and then, you know, using it during college and I have to work some semesters. And that's awesome. And, you know, that's a, I teach a community course here. It was aimed at for small parents of small children. But what I soon learned is that these parents didn't get taught. So when you have somebody who actually gets taught a little bit of money principle, I mean, that's amazing and something that we can pass down to our kids. But getting over, you know, those mental blocks, right? Money coaching, money mindset coaching is a thing. People make really good money being a money mindset coach. Um, so getting over that whole mental block of where are you standing in your own way when it comes to your money is kind of like the first step to me, you know, because no matter what you put into place after that, you're also, you're always going to have these limiting beliefs and these mental blocks around money if you don't address those. But then we get into, you know, what I see a lot uh, in law firms, which is not really wanting to delegate that thing, right? Like, when do I delegate? And also what to expect. I think it's very unclear for a lot of people. If you have a bookkeeper, what exactly are you supposed to expect from them versus if you have an accountant and a tax preparer and who's the financial advisor and what are their roles? And I call those your key financial players, right? Knowing who those people are, how they contribute and what to expect from them. So we get a lot of attorneys who come to us and they're doing their own books at this point. Right. It hasn't made sense to delegate, but they're getting to this point to where they now have to balance their options of do I spend 10 hours a month doing my own books or do I go bill 250 to 350 an hour and delegate that part of what I'm doing? Right. And then what do I get out of that? So once you get to the point, well, whether you're doing your own books or whether you outsource it, then what, what should you be doing after that? Well, then we're looking at financials. And this is where people go cross-eyed and they're like, holy cow, that looks good. Here's the top number, here's the bottom number. I don't really care about anything in between. Let's move on with our life, right? Well, depending on what the bottom number looks like. <laughs> yes, so understanding those, like, you know, what do I do with these? Here are my numbers, here are my financials. Okay, what do I do with them? And even before you can get to the question of what to do, we address how are they presented? Because that matters. How your financials are presented to you. So when you're working with your bookkeeper, you're working with your accountant, if you can't look at your financials and understand where your money is coming from specifically and where your money is going specifically and in even groupings, right? Like, so what are your fixed overhead variable expenses? then you need to rework your chart of accounts. So your chart of accounts is an accountant term and it pretty much stands for how your accounts are named. So when you look at your income statement, your revenue chart of accounts, does it say legal fees earned or does it say, you know, divorce, criminal defense, PI? Are you separating your revenue and tagging it so you know how much of each practice area or matter type are you bringing in? Because that's how people establish flat fees, right? You can't measure what you can't see. And it's all about data collection and data presentation. And that's when you can start working with your numbers to really start slicing and dicing them. And so I think that's another important piece that really overwhelms a lot of people 
is looking at those financials and being like, okay, how do I make a decision based off of these? See, that's so interesting because like one of the biggest things we do on the marketing side is lining up, you know, UTM codes, call rail tracking, whatever. So it's like, all right, add a goes to landing page, a goes to contact form, a comes into, you know, these batch of cases, but what you're saying, it makes uh, so much sense to keep that going of like, all right, I've got this bucket and this bucket and this bucket. What of those are, you know, financially worth it or, or what am I getting bringing in in each of those different practice areas? Absolutely. And tying all those data points together, because especially with marketing, I'm sure you've got data coming from, you know, 10 different places, right? So making sure that all the data is being captured and marketing is one of the things that I speak a lot to when it comes to money, because I am no marketing expert, but I do know that marketing is data driven, heavily data driven, right? And part of the metrics from the numbers side, from the money side is, is there an ROI here? Is there a return on investment? I like using the vending machine versus the slot machine method. Like, do we have proven results here? Because marketing is one of the most common places that you can waste money in any business. Oh, right? absolutely. hundred percent. You know that better than anybody, a right? Absolutely. And, and sometimes people don't listen to me about what's a waste of money, but so be it. And that's why I love numbers. You know, if, if you if you make sure that the data going in is accurate, because garbage in, garbage out is a thing, right? But if the data going in is accurate, numbers don't lie. You know, we don't have to flood your marketing person can't fluff it up and be like, oh, this is working. And no, nope, because the data is right here. Right. Um, and so it's super important to collect that data and to crunch it. And that's <clears throat> why I focus a lot on marketing because you know, it's data driven. We can tie the money to the metrics and make sure that things are working. Most of the time, there's some that are uh, still semi intangible, but, but yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And that's the, I feel like that's the part that we, um, what's the opposite of standardized that we make unique so much more is like, how are we going to, what are we tracking? How are we going to track it? And then what numbers are we actually trying to, you know, mess with? Usually it's number of cases, which leads to revenue, et cetera. But even that then goes back into the financials of what's your average case value per, you know, type of case, or especially for PI, you know, what's your average settlement over average amount of time. That becomes a huge thing to figure out what's worth it. Yes. And it's not always monetary, right? Profits are not just monetary. ROI is not just monetary. It may not be a sale that you're tracking. It's traffic, right? So even understanding how numbers tie into the non monetary pieces of your business and what what are the needle movers and if it's not on the financials there are other kpis right but it can be tracked back to the numbers so tying the two together matters for sure so what are some of these other you know common financial myths or issues or you know your top 10 tips well, so one of the things that we heavily promote, uh, have you ever heard of Profit First? It's a book by Mike Michalowicz. I have. I love that book. I really enjoy Mike's cheesy sense of humor. I feel like me and him relate there. Um, but it promotes this bank account budgeting system because here's the other side to tracking your numbers, right? It's managing the cash because those are kind of two different things, right? We have these numbers, but it's usually representative of a time that has already passed. It's not present. So managing the cash is more of a right now and also the immediate future function, right? So for that, we really like the bank account system that Mike lays out in his book, Profit First, 
where we have multiple bank accounts and each bank account has a designated use, right? So one is exact, one is just for payroll. One is setting aside for taxes for the end of the year. We have a profit account that is a glorified savings account, really. It's more so to exercise that delayed gratification, out of sight, out of mind, set it aside and leave it, right? Um, and then even credit card strategy. So one of my money myths is credit cards are a bad thing. Don't use credit cards. That's untrue. The misuse of credit cards are what is going to get you in trouble. You can actually make money on your credit cards instead of paying interest. Right. Yeah. The uh, It's not that the credit card's bad. It's that the interest rate on the credit card is bad. <laughs> well, you can have high interest rates, but I'm the, the user of the credit card is bad. Right. The person swiping the credit, not bad, but the person swiping the credit card is the reason why the credit card is being seemingly a bad outlet. Right. Because you're charging more. There's no debt management. You're overspending, essentially. And one of your credit cards is just a mode to do that. So credit card strategy is something that we work with law firms on a lot, too. They'll have designated credit cards for, say, client advance costs, because those are heavily like those are tracked separately. Right. That's an important section in your chart of accounts to track transaction by transaction. By using a designated credit card, they can isolate client advance costs and pay the credit card off every month, never accrue an interest fee, get the points, you know, cash the points in on Amazon or a travel ticket or whatever the case may be, and, you know, do that across multiple credit cards. I have some clients that love credit cards and, they, you know, they've got like 10 credit cards, um, but it's all a strategy that inevitably helps organize their spending, make it easier to see, and they don't really pay any interest, but they collect the points. So essentially they're making money off of credit card companies. Hey, it makes perfect sense. Cause obviously otherwise the credit card company is making money off of you. Exactly. Exactly. But again, we're not, you know, we're not really taught this stuff. We're kind of, we're kind of thrown a credit card application at the age of 18. Like, Hey, you don't have a job, but you need money. Right. <laughs> and here's a free bag. Here's a free drink ticket. Here's a free ticket to the movies. I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah. There's yeah. All sorts of things to, to crack open that card. Exactly. Yeah. But it doesn't come with, you know, instructions on how to make sure that you don't overspend and the fact that you're going to have to make a payment each month and what your interest rate is and what you're going to pay over time and what that laptop really costed you after all was said and done. So, Cash strategy is important in law firm too. The physical use of your cash, how you manage it. You know, we've got a lot of firms that don't really stick to a budget and they're telling themselves for one reason or another that a budget isn't helpful for them. It's not useful. I don't know when that settlement money's coming in. So it's pointless for me to, you know, have an eye and a pulse on the expense portion of my business. And it's simply not true. And especially with those cash management, those bank systems, let's take a settlement revenue model, for example. If you have this multi-bank account structure and you get a, a big settlement, it's all going to go into your income account and get dispersed by ratios, according to your historical numbers, into those other accounts. And what's really going to happen there is that you know, now because you have a budget, even if it's most helpful for expenses, now you know that one settlement is going to get you six months down the line should you not make a penny more. Whereas before it would be, well, I hope that in three to six months we're still okay, right? It's having that financial visibility and knowing what your numbers are that creates the peace of mind that a lot of people are lacking.
Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I know that has been the, I want to find the right word here. I, of all of the personal injury attorneys that I've talked to, the ones that have that concept or know that like the case average, you know, used to close in X number of months and now it's, you know, Y number of months. Those like little extra things here have made it so much easier than looking at a bank account and being like, why is this so much lower than it's ever been? Well, there's been no court for, I don't know, 16 months now in some, in some areas. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw that a lot, you know, in COVID, especially with, you know, PI and other practice areas. And so again, what is your strategy? What is your safety net? Uh, COVID caught a lot of people off guard financially. You know, statistically speaking, only one, one in five Americans has savings enough to, to go without a paycheck. Um, the same thing could be seen for businesses when COVID hit. You know, we got a lot of calls. It turns out that people care more about their money when it's in jeopardy. Um, and most people were not prepared. They did not have that safety net. So it was really a reality check for a lot of people. That's another money myth is that it's too early to, or, you know, I, I don't make enough to start saving or I can't save enough. So I'm not going to start now. I'm here to tell you saving is much less about how much you can save and more about developing that habit, money mindset, money habits, right? One of the habits of the wealthy is that they actually save 20% on average of what they bring home. A lot of times you'll hear 10%. They are professional savers, but it's not amount about the amount as much as it is exercising that habit of as soon as you receive money, put some of it aside and don't touch it. Like just understand that it's going to be there, you know, when you need it. And so, you know, another strategy that a lot of people employ in PI specifically is having a line of credit on standby. Even if they have that rainy day fund, something like COVID happens, they have that additional safety net. Now it makes perfect sense. I know I was reading something, the numbers might be off, but it was like, if you save, you know, X number of dollars from 25 to 35 at 8%, by the time you retire at 65, it was like $4 million. And if you save the same amount of money from 35 to 65, it was like one and a half million dollars. It was just crazy to see how quickly uh, it, well, I guess not quickly, but how, how much it adds up over time when you aren't looking for those quick savings here and there. Yes. And furthermore, if you invest it, the power of compounding interest, that is how generational wealth is created. Yeah, but it takes that habit. How much do you work with firms on how to do that inside of the firm? That's that's what we focus on. But my personal hope, like the hope in the back of my head, is that our clients take the principles and the strategies that we teach them into their personal life. And we've had clients approach us to do to help them cross over into that personal arena of their life and set up a financial game plan like that. No, it makes perfect sense. I just know, like, as we transitioned to more PI over the last, I don't know, three or four years at this point, I was like, the firm needs a investment account, same like the line of credit, same like the ready day fund, whatever. And obviously, I mean, it is in like government backed bonds getting, you know, less than inflation or whatever it is, but it's there and it's doing something better than sitting in a checking account for nothing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we didn't go into business to work 60 hours a week and, you know, leave 
with nothing, right? Um, <clears throat> but people get so bogged down with becoming the entrepreneur, with wearing all the hats that they completely forget to save, to set aside, to invest in retirement, to utilize their business in a tax advantageous way to fund their retirement so that one day they reach that point of, you know, some people don't like the word retirement. Some people like working by choice. They don't have to work anymore. They can just work for fun. Right. But in order to reach that place, you have to start planning now. You have to plan that far ahead and you have to invest, whether it be in people, processes or traditional money investments. See, it's very interesting because I don't know, though, I very much enjoy 99 percent of the work that I do. But if like if I hit like a 20, you know, a 250 million dollar lotto or something like that, like the show would be canceled, guys. And just just or at least I wouldn't be doing it just to let you know. <laughs> Okay, but the, okay, and so here's another thing too. You know, law firms in in more and more states, it's now a lot of attorneys don't see that as an option of exiting, right? Whether you hit the lottery or not, if you can if you can exit your firm for a smooth half a mil, I mean, why not? Whether it be bringing on a a partner if you're an S corp and they become a shareholder and purchase the firm for you, or it be, you know it's a succession firm. Um, there's, there's more often a way to exit profitably, I think, than a lot of us like to acknowledge in law firms. Oh yeah. And don't get me wrong. I am trying to convince my three and a half year old to become a plumber or an HVAC technician and not be a lawyer. <laughs> but hypothetically, if that happened, then yeah, that would, that would be an option. Um, I want to go to one of our questions. Breezy, are you ready for that? All right. So the question is coming up now. It's is planning ahead at the age of 48 still possible? And I think I know the answer, but I'm going to send it to you, Chelsea, to give Absolutely. us your expert wisdom. Absolutely. If you work with a retirement planner, they have accelerated programs and strategies that you can utilize and employ to catch up. Is there, I know this is personal to everybody. I know this is going to be different, but are there any obvious 99% of the time changes that happen when you're talking about somebody starting at, you know, 45 versus 25? Other than the accelerated investment, right? So it's, it's probably going to be one of those situations where you have to kind of decrease your living expenditures now for the long game, right? So invest more now, which you do feel at home, which a lot of people don't like, right? Because they'd have a certain lifestyle that they want to maintain but it's a give and take, right? So that's about, that's the only thing I can see is different there. So correct me if I'm wrong. So what you're saying is it might be, you know, 35% instead of 20% at that age. Yes. Okay. Yep. You're investing more right now to get there because you do, you have a little bit of catch up work to do, um, but that's okay. And I will say that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people came up in the market during COVID. You know, if you follow any investors, and I'm not a retirement planner, um, you know, I have somebody else manage my investments. But if you if you listen to, you know, the Robert Kiyosaki's and the, the Tony Robbins, they will tell you that the wealthy, while everybody else is jumping ship, the wealthy saved all of their investing dollars to invest it while everybody else was jumping ship. So leveraging the swings in the market, um, you know, is something that you can also plan to do from now to then, however many years that looks like for you. All right, I'm going to go to Carlos's follow-up question. I'm going to I'm going to leave the numbers out, Carlos, just for your benefit here. So if you have, you know, X number of dollars in a 401k from a company, when you work there, 
Should you leave it in that 401k or roll it over? Or the follow-up question to that is, who would be the better person for them to talk to about that if that's not you? Yeah, so that's definitely a retirement planner's um, conversation. So find find a retirement planner um, and talk to them because it's not a cookie cutter, cutter answer. I think a lot of people look for cookie cutter solutions and especially when it comes to money, investing, there really is no cookie cutter. Um, and you really have to utilize and stay on top of what's happening. For example, one of the CARES packages allowed people to convert their retirement funds with no penalties. It was a great time. A lot of people pulled their money out and hopped all over that market while everybody was jumping ship, right? So, you know, one of the things that we encourage law firm owners to do is touch base with your financial planner at least twice a year, just to get updates, just to give updates, stay in tune with them because that way when things like that happen, you're sitting and ready to jump on that opportunity. And I think that's the biggest thing. Cause like what you were talking about before makes so much sense, you know, for all these stocks or, or other investments that drop, you know, 25% from March 1st to March 15th, it was really easy for if you had enough window and enough risk to get that back, you know, really quickly. I think the S and P's up almost 50% since March, beginning of March, I could be wrong on that. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, I'm with you. And I think along those lines, there also is that benefit of having some of your money doing nothing or being in those bonds or being in CDs or, you know, something where you're not, you don't have that risk so that you have the opportunity when that situation comes up. Yeah. And knowing your investing strengths, right? So, you know, a lot of people say multiple nest eggs. Don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Disperse your eggs. Um, but again, there's no cookie cutter strategy for that. And there is, I wish I could remember this website. There was, they had an investment personality test where it would identify what are your investing strengths? Meaning if you love antiques, there's a market for antiques. You could, you could employ your hobby and deal antiques and make this money on the side, right? If you are into property investment, um, that's a pretty sure way to build wealth. You know, you can create a nest in property investment. So looking even outside of your law firm, what can you do that you can that's not going to be miserable right like me i can't do properties i can't I, I can't deal with the handyman and the chores and the man stuff i'm illiterate when it comes to a tool bag okay properties aren't my thing so i don't do them so knowing yourself and looking for opportunities for those investments even outside of your law firm yeah and and along those lines like there's a finance you called it your financial team yes that's very similar to your employees. Not that they necessarily work for you. I mean, they should, but like not in the same way. But ultimately, like I hire people who are the opposite of me just as much as I hire people that are similar to me because I know what I'm good at. Like my financial advisor, I'll give him a shout out, Rob, Rob Lagenhausen, the coolest guy. But when it comes to finances, the most uptight person ever, which is exactly what I need because I am the like, let's go crypto options for this week. Let's go day trading this. Like I would go totally nuts and blow through everything 10 times over. So that's part of our team. And, and on the one in a thousand that we are both on the same page, I know that's a great, you know, that, that is a worthwhile risk because both of us agree being so different when it comes to our you know, investment beliefs. 
Yeah. I mean, and you're right. Your financial team should be just a much, just as much a part of what you're doing as your employees are, because what you think about it, you, again, you didn't go into business to have nothing to show for it. You know, personally, we're just being honest here. You, you, you have to call your shot. You can't measure what you can't see working with somebody that's going to get you from point A to point B, where you can go and say, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to be in 15, 20, 30 years. What do I need to know to get there? And then the, in the follow-up, right? So it's in the follow-up where you meet with them at least twice a year to say, how am I doing? Am I behind where we wanted to be? Am I ahead? What are my options? You know, investing that follow-up in yourself. Yeah, that is, I, that's, that's sort of what I posted about this morning on LinkedIn um, that I really want to highlight for everybody. Like this is not a situation where you open up your firm and it is a skyrocket of success in a complete linear line. You know, this is a great month, a down month, a great year, a down year. Da, 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 da. You're looking for those higher highs. You're looking for those higher lows, finances, case number, revenue, results, whatever it's going to be. You're really looking for that progress more than you are looking for a definitive, consistent upward spike, I think. Yeah, my, my 2020 mantra was that, you know, it's not about hitting home runs. It's about hitting the singles. You hit enough singles and you hit the game, you, you win the game. I think a lot of times we're sitting back waiting for this huge thing to happen. And it's almost like, well, this ball has to drop before I can go do these things. I just, I got to wait. In the meantime, the things, the small things that you could be doing day in, day out, weekend, month, that is what's going to make the difference. So uh, Breezy, I want to go to the, the next question that we had, if you're ready for it. Okay. So um, in choosing a financial planner, or really I want to say this to in creating this financial team, what tips do you have to make sure you're choosing the right one, the right ones, the right team, the right people, et cetera? Because I know you have the most amazing spot of you all are full and not taking new clients and have a waiting list. So for anybody listening who wants Chelsea, I, that ship has not sailed, but it is not uh, on its voyage currently. So what are some things people should be looking for to get that right team together? Yes. So it depends on which one we're talking about. So let's go through them, right? <clears throat> a bookkeeper is pretty straightforward. Law firm experience in any of these, a bookkeeper, accountant, tax preparer is a massive plus because there are some nuances, um, but they can be understood. Bookkeepers are, so what to expect from them? Those are the data entry people, right? So they data in, data out. And here's the key. It's in how to work with these people. They can't read your mind. And a lot of people, we've even had it where they hire us. And because they didn't see the results that they wanted in the first two to three months, they jumped ship. But what you have to understand is that it takes time to get to know your law firm, your operations, even your tax preparer is probably going to need one or two years to really get a good grasp on what you're doing. So the key is in the relationship. Can you communicate with this person? Can you be clear enough with yourself to identify what you expect from this person and communicate it to them, right? We have a really good Asana checklist on our website for download of everything that needs to be done and expected from your bookkeeper and accountant and when to do it, right? You guys are welcome to go grab that. Um, and so, you know, for a tax preparer, are they asking you your goals up to the next three to five years? Because if you have a tax preparer that is only looking at last year and doing what they can for that one year and grabbing everything they can for that one year, 
you may be missing out on strategy. Short, preparing your taxes one year at a time is short-sighted. Find somebody who's gonna ask you questions about your personal life two to three to four to five years down the road. And in terms of a financial advisor, so I have some specific referrals for this one. So for the ladies, for the women out there, Elevest, Elevest is um, an investment platform designed specifically for women. So they did this very interesting study on the investing habits between men and women, and there were very identifiable differences. The ways that women invest and the ways that men invest are incredibly different. And traditional retirement companies, so you know your big hitters, they are built on the, the man's way of investing, that, that method. Um, and so for the women, I would highly recommend that you go to Elevest, their website. They have a really good um, set of information on you know what they're about, what you would need in addition to that. Um, and then I am not, so this is just my personal opinion. I don't like the box retirement companies. I don't like the retirement companies who are incentivized to take this package and get you to fit in it, right? So it, retirement planners who are not tied to the big box brands are probably going to put something together. Their incentive is to puzzle piece something around you, not force you into a company's box of their products and what they offer. So that would be my advice for a financial advisor. Breezy, I'm getting a comment that the audio cut out. I don't know if it's back yet or not. We'll, oh, darn. we'll just keep rolling. We, I mean, we've got the hard feed if need be. So um, is there a, this is a selfish question because I'm curious. Is there like a 30 to 45 second explanation of the difference between how women invest and how men invest? Or is that like way too long of a there is and it's i love it because it's actually reflective of how they make business decisions as well so they have also shown similar results when they have studied corporate heads um men versus women so here's what happens men tend to make quicker decisions and investing up front and investing more money women tend to want to gather information first sit back and chew on the information and then slowly employ an investment strategy. But what it showed over time, and I can't remember the, um, the time span, and it's probably on Elevest's website as well, or in one of the talks that the founder gives. Over the span of time, women actually outperform men. Oh, I don't, I don't doubt that. Cause like, it's funny, you know, my wife and I started our own like on the side investment accounts for, each of us have one during the towards the beginning of COVID, and like I was like, "Hey, I'm up, I'm up a bunch, I'm up this, I'm up that." And she's like, "Okay, well, I'm making a little bit, I'm making a little bit." And then like six months later, it was like, "All right, I'm down a bunch," and she's like, "I'm still making my little bit, I'm still making my, I got my steps." So that is uh, that is absolutely the Ostrov household in a nutshell. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome, and you know, women, men, and women balance each other out. There, there are strengths to both, and we really have to leverage both of them. But that was one of the most interesting um, studies I've seen. Makes perfect sense. All right, so um, we've got about 10 minutes left. So I wanna make sure, are there any other topics that you wanna make sure that we cover? Oh, not specifically. We've covered, we've covered the mindset, you know, um, and addressed that as well as habits. I, I will say, so 
uh, there's a really good book that I really, I believe everyone should, should read. It's called Rich Kids by Tom Corley. And it sounds like a book for kids, but it is a phenomenal book. So what they did is they performed a seven-year study and compared the habits of the wealthy compared to the habits of those who were living in poverty. And so the motive for this study, like the end result was money, right? These people that have a lot of money and these people that hardly have any money. But what the study revealed, and this is why mindset has to be a first, a lot of their financial gain and wealth didn't really come from direct activities that have to do with money. It's about investing in yourself. It's about holding yourself count accountable. It's about how you communicate, even how you parent, how many books you read, whether you believe in luck or not. I know one of them was um, people that gamble or, you know, they're, one of the lines was gambling and the wealthy, they don't really gamble. But those living in poverty tend to gamble a lot because they believe in luck instead of self-investment and consistency to assure that they get to where they need to go. So that's a really interesting book um, that really addresses a lot of the mindset and habits around money that I think everyone could benefit from. Awesome. And that's Rich Kids by Tom Corley, C-O-R-L-E-Y. We're going to drop the Amazon link here into the comments for those who are uh, on the Facebook page. Uh, that is not an affiliate link. If you find it somewhere else cheaper, by all means, go for it. It's just that was literally the one that the first one that came up when I Googled it. So we've got that coming in right now. And it's so true. Like I so I'm a, I'm a weirdo. I, I think everybody knows that who knows me in any way, shape or form. And to me, like raising a kid is is one long science experiment or like a million shorter science experiments. And so much of it is all right. This is what my parents did to me. This is how I reacted for it. And it is so totally anecdotal. But I want my kid to have the same reaction or I want to change what came in and rich dad, poor dad to me is a parenting guide. Like that is totally something that I read when I think my kid was four months old and I read it totally from the standpoint of like, how do you instill some of these things in a child or make them self-sufficient or whatever? So you're speaking my language here. Yeah. And what did, what did he do? He took principles and applied them to money through how you were raised by age seven, right? Isn't that like that book, Rich Dad, Rich Dad, right? right? That's the name of it, Rich Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Rich, Rich, Rich Dad, Dad, Poor Dad. Dad. Yeah, yeah, so he talks about, so his dad is the poor dad, which is funny because like, you think like, oh, they're poor. No, 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 but his dad was, uh, is that very similar to my dad? Like his, my dad delivered mail, that was his job. I think his dad was a teacher or an academia. And he talked about like, got a raise, more expenses got a raise got more expenses and it wasn't that they were poor it was that they weren't rich and he goes into like his buddy's dad who owned the laundromat and the grocery store and the house cleaning service and whatever and from that kind of entrepreneurial mindset what lessons he learned talking to his you know friend's dad working for him etc yeah yeah it's those principles that show up in how we use that vessel that tool that is money and it's amazing to me the, I don't know, I'm, I'm all in this like not anti-school kick, but on this, what do you have to bring in to support the schooling system? Because obviously like going into $150,000 in debt to get a college degree, most people won't bat an eye at, but then like getting a $10,000 loan to start a business, you're never going to get credit for it. You're ne it's never going to happen. And so it's just, it's interesting to see like what things we as a society value which then goes into what do we learn because we're taught the same, you know, structure. 
Yes. Um, Vera Birkenbill was a German professor, professor, and she has a really hard truth that she preaches to her students and that you can find on a YouTube video. And she says, she has this diagram where there's two like, you know, avatars of humans. And she goes, when you're born, this is your potential, you know, from a few different area aspects, this is your potential as a human being. And this is, you know, as you live your life. And she goes, now normally under any circumstance, you would fill your potential, right? As this human being, she goes, but something meddles in. It's called education. And therefore you were made normal, right? And so we have this, I'm kind of with you, or we have this system where we are encouraged to live within this box um, and to take this specific route, right? To college and, and to do all of these things. But there are people, and there was another study done that college graduates, something like 80% of them didn't use their designated degree and something like 60 to 70% of them, all the reasons why they went to college to buy a house, to have a nice car, to get married, to have a kid are the same things that they have put on hold post-college to pay off student debt. Well, the, the best one, and I don't want to I don't want to rag too much on education because obviously I have a crap ton. Whether I use any of it, I I don't know. Sometimes I feel like YouTube and uh, podcasts got me farther from what I'm doing now. But like, you know, you go to school and it's like, you need to cite all your sources. And if you copy this paragraph, we're kicking you out for academic dishonesty. And then you start a business. And at least from the law firm standpoint, literally every firm I know is like, well, why did you start this motion from scratch? Why aren't you working off the template? Why aren't you reusing the last motion. Why, you know, why are you wasting all that time? Why are you billing the client for all that stuff or the time being unbillable? And it's just, it is fundamentally different between what you're taught and how at least our industry operates. Yes, absolutely. I refer to that as the book smart versus the street smart. The book start is good. It is helpful. Um, you know, for attorneys, it is required. But the street smart is where we go and network with other entrepreneurs, people who have already achieved what we are trying to achieve, right? We're open to change. We're open, open to out-of-the-box thinking. We're open to all of the things that law school did not teach us to circle all the way back around, right, about owning your own business. All right. So um, I'm going to come back on the biggest takeaway, but anything else before we get to that part? All right, so I want to talk about our upcoming episodes. Um, I will be in Chicago the rest of this week to next Monday, so we're going something a little bit different. We will not have a guest. We will not have a live show this Thursday or next Monday. Instead, we are going to recast, um, or we're gonna we are going to cast presentations that we've done elsewhere to make sure you guys have access to all of them. So we are going to cast uh, one on how you take your marketing to the next level. So that will be me going through the five most common marketing tactics that people do and how you can add something to them. So if you're doing, if you're doing a ton of networking right now, we're going to go into how can you start running ads to get more referral sources? How can you put together a podcast to, to connect with your referral sources and create content together? And then doing that for ads, for social media, for a couple of different ones. We're then also going to run a presentation that Greg Eisenberg did on uh, UTM codes, call rail, Google Analytics and how you track your metrics. So we'll talk about how you take your marketing to the next level. We'll talk about tracking your metrics. If you have any questions from those shows, please drop them on the feed, uh, wherever it is, we will find them or email me, jordan at legaleasemarketing.com, E-A-S-E, marketing.com. We will get make sure we answer all of your questions because we won't have the opportunity to take them live because those shows will not be live. 
We will then be back live starting on August 5th. So not this Friday or not this Thursday, but the following Thursday, August 5th at 1.30 with Sharon V. Sharon's going to talk to us about how you rediscover your passion and create a life you love. For those of you that know me and my uh, handle, Lord of the Life, we always love mixing in a bunch of these. So Sharon is also a fellow attorney who has also gone through burnout, who has also gone through a lot of the crap that we were given and now helps people find the right legal component for them or the right job for them. So she will be with us Thursday, August 5th at 1.30 to talk about how you rediscover your passions and create a life you love. But enough about that. Chelsea, to anybody who's been listening to this for 50-something minutes, remembers absolutely nothing you said except what you're about to share now. What is the biggest piece of advice you have for firm owners or attorneys in general on how they can be the exhibit A of a successful attorney? I remember when COVID first hit and there was a lady that reached out to me on social media and I could tell that she was incredibly frantic um, because she knew what was about to happen to her, to her firm financially. I ended up meeting with her at like 8 PM on a Tuesday night. I just, I felt for her, my heart went out for her. And I was like, you know what? I don't have any availability. Let me just, let's do something after hours. I met with this woman at 8 p.m. on a weeknight, and she was the the typical attorney I told you about earlier that was terrified to let somebody in and admit that you don't know what you don't know. And so in tears, she was literally in tears when we met. We got to it. I asked her, tell me what you owe. Tell me what you know you're paying for. Tell me what you think we're going to make. And that night we roughed out a budget and we made a few key changes and she ended up signing on as a client. Two years later, she is one of my most successful clients. She almost has her law firm on autopilot. She just hired a CEO, a managing attorney to take over a lot of the managing duties that she was doing so that she can go launch another venture. I said in the beginning, one of my favorite parts about being an entrepreneur is that this is a mirror and it will only grow as much as you are willing to grow. It is okay not to know and understand pieces of your business. It is not okay not to ask for help if you want to succeed. I love that. And, and it's, you know, I always, I talk to firm owners and I went through this, the, I wish I could clone myself phase. And then ideally you get to the point where you're like, oh my God, if I clone myself, that would be my nightmare. Like I like having people with different opinions and with different mindsets and with different, you know, pros and cons. But we, we, I think all go through it barring as far as I know, there are no law firms that were launched with like $2 million of venture capital money. So you, at some point it was just you or a very small group and you've grown from that. Um, But I'm right there. Like it is, it is about knowing what you need to know finding the people that know what you don't know, and then putting them in the right spaces, whether that's employees, whether that's vendors, whether that's fractional CFOs, whether that's fractional CMOs, whatever it is. Um, I'm totally there with you. And I am so happy to hear the success that that client had. Yes, it's, it's amazing what just asking for help, it can create such a massive pivotal change in your business. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Exhibit A Attorneys. If you're interested in becoming the Exhibit A of a successful attorney, please check us out at LegalEaseMarketing.com, E-A-S-E.